Roman Polanski, an Academy Award-winning filmmaker whose films have been mostly celebrated and honored by film critics and fans across the world for decades. But, behind the camera, especially these days, the name Polanski is synonymous with underage sexual assault due to a polarizing incident that occurred in 1977 with a 13-year-old girl named Samantha Gailey. Yet, despite serving 42 days in prison after pleading guilty to unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor and fleeing the United States after learning the judge wanted to throw him back in prison, Polanski went on to win an Oscar for directing in 2003 and remains a celebrated auteur. Do his crimes make it impossible to enjoy the work now, especially when there have been up to five additional accusations of underage assault as late as 2017? Today, on the 10th episode of Filmgasm and our second Weird Shit Wednesday, my guest Austin Johnson and I will take you through a timeline of Roman Polanski's career and his sexual assault case that has stuck to him like glue for over four decades. So glad you decided to tune in and treat yourself to a particularly aggressive filmgasm. My name is Connor Zagari. I'm a massive film buff, and Filmgasm is a podcast where I talk about my favorite genre, horror, as well as weird Hollywood shit that piques my interest and the careers of notable figures in film history. If you'd like to see more from Filmgasm, feel free to visit Filmgasm.com. That's F-I-L-M-G-A-Z-M. There you can check out daily movie reviews, articles about movies, the newest trailers, and all my early podcasts that I did with my partners. As I said earlier, this is Weird Shit Wednesday, which means instead of a horror film, I'll be joined by my partner in crime, Austin Johnson, to talk about a filmmaker's career or a Hollywood legend or scandal, in this case, Roman Polanski. To prep for this podcast, I read some selections from Polanski's autobiography, Roman by Polanski. <laughs> Pretentious. <laughs> yeah. First published in 1984. I figured it was necessary to learn things from his perspective, as well as the victims. Now, before we get started, uh, rest in peace, Peter Mayhew who tragically died of a heart attack this past week. Mm-hmm. His role of Chewbacca in Star Wars was an essential piece of pop culture history, and our hearts go out to his family. So, Austin, you prepped roughly the same amount I did for this podcast. What, going in, was your opinion of Roman Polanski? Uh, going into this exercise, this ex- <laughs> experiment, I guess, it's been, we've done this for about four weeks. Yeah. Um, we've watched pretty much every movie he's, he's, he's directed. With a few exceptions, yeah. stuff that was hard to find. There's stuff that's very hard to find. There is some stuff that's very old. Um, going into this, I, I had watched this this the documentary on HBO. It's very popular uh, about him. I'd watched that. That was my initial perspective on him. Was okay. This guy's guilty of this horrible crime. Uh, he also have, seems to have this as like kind of a vice. Uh, so I kind of hated the guy to begin with. But then I started watching his movies. Uh, kind of fell in love with a couple of them and when I do fall in love with something like a, a piece of art I tend to separate the two uh, the creator from the actual art and uh, I, I you have to do that with him otherwise you're not going to be able to enjoy it yeah. and I, I continue to do that now because I love movies I'm going to continue to watch them always and he, he absolutely has some classics uh, but overall I think he's overrated <laughs> I think he's not as talented as people think I think he is pretentious I think that book is borderline ridiculous but um <laughs> but hey yeah it came out in the 80s it's old um yeah a fascinating fascinating guy i don't think he deserves the stature he's gotten from the academy from uh just just fellow fellow film you know workers <laughs> yeah when he got the standing ovation after he won you know for the pianist and he wasn't there because he can't be here because <laughs> he's a fucking wanted fugitive uh he got a massive standing ovation uh from the likes of you know jack nicholson you know harrison ford these people who are you know have worked with him before so it's very hard to separate them when it's this heinous of a crime, yeah. but you have to if you want to watch his movies, and that's what I had to do. 
And I'm glad I did because it was it was a fun journey overall. Yeah, me too. For the most part, there were some. Uh, yeah, there's some, some bad ones. Man. There are some bad ones. Yeah, but you know, nobody makes consistently good films. It's impossible. Except for the guy we did last. Except uh, for Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, yeah. that's because he has so few. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Polanski swung a lot, and I think missed it quite a few times. But yeah, he does. Again, he has some absolute classics. I don't want to diminish those, but he's yeah. not batting a thousand, but he's in the game. Yeah. Yes. There you go. There you go. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> okay. Roman Polanski was born in Paris, France in 1933, though he was raised in Poland. When the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939, Polanski's parents, being of Jewish heritage, were captured and sent to different concentration camps. His father to Mauthausen-Gusen in Austria, where he survived the war, and his mother to Auschwitz, where she was killed. Mm -hmm. Roman managed to escape the, the ghetto and survive the war, at first wandering through the Polish countryside and pretending to be a Roman Catholic kid visiting his relatives. Although this saved his life, he was severely mistreated, suffering nearly a fa uh, suffering a nearly fatal beating, which left him with a fractured skull. Local people usually ignored the cinemas where German films were shown, but Polanski seemed little concerned by the propaganda and often went to the movies. As the war progressed, Poland became increasingly war-torn, and he lived his life as a tramp, hiding in barns and forests, eating whatever he could steal or find. Still under 12 years old, he encountered some Nazi soldiers who forced him to hold targets while they shot at him. At the war's end in 1945, he reunited with his father, who sent him to a technical school, but young Polanski seemed to have already chosen another career. He took up acting initially, but seemed to have found his niche in directing when he made three short films, Two Men and a Wardrobe in 1958, The Fat and the Lean in 1961, and Mammals in 1962. His career as a feature director officially began in 1962 with Knife in the Water, the first Polish film to ever be nominated for Best Foreign Film at the Oscars. Its story revolves around a young, wealthy couple played by Leon Niemczyk and Jolanta Umeka, who pick up a hitchhiker played by Zygmunt Malinowicz and invite them on her, he, uh, they invite him on their sailboat for the day. Tension, tensions rise as Andre and Christina, the couple, relentlessly mock and belittle the unnamed hitchhiker since he doesn't know how to swim or sail. <laughs> Admittedly, it's not a very good movie. It's quite dull and forgettable, though the jazzy yeah. score and cinematography foreshadow his later works. For sure. It's got an IMDb score of 7.6, an unbelievable Rotten Tomatoes score of 100%, <laughs> but I frankly give it a 6. Yeah, that's about right. 6 or 7 for me as well. Knife in the Water. This was... Of course, everyone's debut for Polanski, and not a good start, frankly. I mean, I don't get what everybody sees about this. No, I don't see the, the big ruckus. And, and, and it does, when, when someone does get a bunch of noise after a debut like that, it can kind of falsely give them uh, inspiration or like, hey, I can keep doing this. and uh, that, False modesty. That yeah, 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 and it, yeah. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, this, it's just watching these two assholes mess with a guy yeah, for an yeah. hour and a half. Yeah. It's like, did this happen to you? Is this like, is this like a reflection of something? I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, th that, that could have been a short film. Again, yeah. make, just make, it, make another short film. Easily. Like, you don't get into the story because there really isn't one at all. No, to get into. no, no. And this would be a recurring theme for him was pointless films, really. Yeah. Relying on, like you said, scores or cinematography or actors. And sometimes those, those things didn't hit on all cylinders. So, yeah. Uh, Polanski's next film, Repulsion, in 1965, would be his first English-language film, as well as the first of his unofficial apartment trilogy, the other two being Rosemary's Baby and The Tenant. Mm -hmm. 
All three deal with increasing paranoia while living in an apartment building. I don't think Polanski liked apartment buildings. No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little afraid of them too now. (laughs) (laughs) Not the buildings, just the neighbors. Yeah, yeah. It's the people that are right next to you all the time. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. Especially Rosemary's Baby, man. Yikes. Oh, God. Thanks. We'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) Repulsion stars Catherine Deneuve as Carol, a psychologically disturbed young woman with a fear of intimacy and a hatred of sex. Carol goes on to murder two men and has horrific visions of rape and violence when she's alone in her sister's apartment. Repulsion has an IMDb score of 7.8, a Rotten Tomato score of 100%, again. Back-to-back back 100s. And a 6 for me, again. <laughs> I don't know what the hell people are seeing in back his early back. work. I, the, the 100s don't make sense. They, though, there has to be something there. that this, They don't make sense. <laughs> they don't make sense at all. Because even even when it, if you compare it to the, the 7.6 in IMDb or 7 or whatever is pretty pretty good, too. Yeah. Uh, for IMDb, they're pretty harsh. So, But 100, my God. We're talking about, like, that's like the... That's like what, you know, Godfather 2 is. Yeah, that's everybody loved it. Yeah, that, that means hands down, when you watch this, you will be floored. Like, yeah. no matter what. And that's just not the case here. No, not at all. If that were the case, I'd say like 60, like you said, six, like yeah. 60% of people will be, even if that, will be blown away. It was away. filmed beautifully, but again, it's just, it's not engaging, and it's frankly just weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I, th- I think a lot of the cinematography was pretty shocking to see during this, to the, during like the 60s. True. Uh, so, so for us, like so many, we've watched so many films that you and I are not as not as uh, surprised or that's true. We've been desensitized. Yeah, we're not as impressed, I guess. Yeah. But I guess at the time, but still, the hundred percent makes no sense because if people were going back and revisiting the craft, they'd be like, oh, I, I, that that doesn't deserve hundred. It's Criterion. It's in the yeah. Criterion collection, and I, yeah. I disagree with that. I don't know. Um, in his autobiography, Roman Polanski admitted that he and his co-writer and longtime future collaborator Gerard Brock came up with the film so as to have a commercial success which would then help them fund the making of their next film, Cul-de-Sac, which was much more personal. And frankly, much more entertaining. I agree. Cul-de-Sac is fantastic. 1966 stars Donald Pleasance and Francois Dorliac as George and Teresa, a newlywed couple who are held hostage in their island home by a wounded gangster named Dickie. Ah, classic. Played by really, Lionel Stander. Really good Polanski character right there. Fucking Dickie's the best. I love yeah. Dickie. While waiting for Dickie's boss to come bail him out of trouble, George becomes increasingly more terrified and hostile, while Teresa starts to unwind and see the fun in all of it. I adored this movie, found it hugely entertaining. It's got an IMDb score of 7.2, Rotten Tomatoes score of 83%, and an 8 from Filmgasm. Yes, I agree with I, I agree with the 83%, that's fair. Yeah. I uh, just don't like it in comparison to those other hundreds, but yeah, that's a great film. Very clever and, and like you said, a little bit more personal, and God, Dickie is a classic. He's such an asshole. You guys would love, yeah. You gotta watch that for that 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 performance. That character is great. Yeah, Lionel Stander knocked it out of the park. Yeah, 100%. and it's such a unique film because you don't really have any loyalties to anybody. You're kind of yeah in the yeah. ballpark with everybody, which is fun. It's a fun place to be. I think I think I think Roman figured out a lot of like what he could do. Like the I think he reached you know kind of reached uh, his powers. Kind of he fi- kind of figured out what he can do as a craftsman behind the camera in this. Where you are kind of at a loss of, like, who do I root for? And that doesn't really matter. Um, if it's an effective film, an effective plot, then yeah, so be it. And it's fucking hilarious. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'd say this is uh, one of his funnier... Yeah, one of his funnier films, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Really hard to find. <laughs> and currently, um, you can only get it by renting it from uh, Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. which I had to do with a lot of these movies. Yeah, yeah. But, uh... I hope to find it on DVD one day. I'd love to own that. Same. Yeah, that, that's a good one. It's great. I love the name, too. Cold Cold is a great title. (laughs) 
Now, Polanski followed Cul-de-Sac with another comedy, 1967's The Fearless Vampire Killers. Boo. <laughs> where Polanski plays Alfred, a hapless assistant to vampire hunter Professor Abronzius, played by Jack McGowan. Together, they, much, they, much, uh, they have to rescue a beautiful villager named Sarah, played by Polanski's wife and muse Sharon Tate, from the evil Count Von Krolock, played by Ferdy Main. This film is utterly ridiculous and quite possibly his worst film. <laughs> At least that's what I think. Yeah, it, it's got a couple <laughs> moments that are funny. And Sharon Tate is uh, like unbelievably gorgeous. Um, she is. She's beautiful, but uh, that doesn't mean much when you're trying to make a you know yeah. hour and a half long film and keep my attention when fucking could have told me that in 10 minutes. <laughs> I don't know, a spoiler alert, but this is... It, it's really silly. It's supposed to be really clever and whatnot, but again, it's way too long for what they're trying to get across, and there's not near enough substance or humor or anything to make me laugh or entertain me in it. Or resolution. Nothing, yeah, yeah. It's like, happens. yeah, yeah, at the end, yeah, whatever. Sharon Tate, you know, bites him in. Yeah, oh, all right, then now vampires are, you know, going to take over. But they don't um, even, like, they're the fearless vampire killers. They don't kill any vampires. No, no, they don't. They, like, <laughs> rescue Sharon Tate's character who ends up being a vampire. And they just fuck around the castle for a while. Yes, they really just dick around. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 like, frustrating. There's a couple moments, like, when they're in the snow, like, sledding. That I, I was laughing. Yeah. I'll admit. But, like, I think Polanski's bad in this. Like, I yeah. think his performance is bad. Uh, he's not believable at all. And he's, like, a lot of, like, just, like, hand motions. Like, let's go in here. Let's go in this room. That's supposed to be funny, but that's not funny. It's not. It's no. pretty cheap. Physical comedy is not his strong suit. No, not at all. <laughs> Fearless Vampire Killers has an IMDb score of 7.2. Rotten Tomatoes score of 67%. About right. And I would give it a 5. I have 5 or 6, yeah. Cause, yeah, it's hard. I don't know. Yeah, probably 5. Yeah. It was boring, man. <laughs> so far, he's kind of not really proven himself yet. No, so we're down to four films right here, right? Yes. And yeah, one of them we both yeah quite enjoyed, but the other three, not not so much. And it would be Polanski's next film that would be his biggest hit to date and cement his future in Hollywood as a for major sure. player. And cement his his our, our love for him as a horror. Yes. A horror, you know. 1968's is... Rosemary's Baby. Oh, yeah. Based on the novel by Ira Levin tells the story of Rosemary Woodhouse, played to perfection by Mia Farrow. She's an expectant mother who has convinced herself that her pregnancy was orchestrated by her neighbors, who she believes to be witches. The film is considered one of the greatest horror films of all time and truly lives up to that title. And frankly, it scared the shit out of me. Yeah, it is fucking frightening. I was not expecting to be as unnerved by this film as I was. It's, to me, one of the scariest Scariest, most like moving, unnerving movies of all time. Yeah, um, it, it doesn't. It doesn't have you know the jump scares or all that that good yeah. stuff. But uh, it does beautiful things with just paranoia. Hey, yeah, Mia Farrow like, is like so believable yeah. as that pale face, just lost, like confused. But at the same time, I think I know what's going on. You see the whole movie through her eyes. So you're just as confused and scared as she is. Yeah, because you know as much as she does at all times. Yes, and I love that. And even in the, in the film's end, like. You can take it one of two ways. You can believe, yes, she was right the whole time, or she snapped. And she had lost her mind at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. 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 It could go either way, and either way works great. Just I, Yeah, I, because yeah. you have at the beginning of the film what's like a great, like, you know, beginning of the film, like, intro, is that they were told at this apartment there was some bad stuff that happened here, and they just kind of, eh, yeah, yeah. kind of let it go. And uh, that's oh, that happens a lot in horror, you know? We saw that in The Shining. We did that. was the first film, Gasm. Um, yeah. We see that a lot where there's like something that they tell you, hey, you probably shouldn't fucking do this, but they go ahead and do it anyway, and we, we just love that as fans. 
because that that straps us in and we're already like oh, no you know already kind of there yeah. and this 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 film does not let up at all man it doesn't and uh, I guess we should break down what exactly goes on because this this one this one's we can talk about a little bit more yeah so uh, Rosemary and her husband Guy with <laughs> who's who's just such a douche <laughs> such an asshole uh, God he's a douchebag man uh. Uh, they move into this new apartment uh, they're newlyweds they're happy. They're hoping to be pregnant. And one night, Rosemary is uh, drugged, and she wakes up in the middle of being raped by the devil. Yeah. yeah like, we see... We, yeah. It's, yeah. It's an intense scene, man. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this have uh, seen that. It's intense. It's, it's horrifying. And you see people around, standing around. And, Including and, her husband. Yeah. It is watching. fucking frightening. You see the scratches happen yeah. on her back. Ooh, And boy. she wakes up. She's like, oh, shit. This isn't a dream. This is really happening. Yeah. Which, when she, yeah, when she says that yeah. out loud, that's a classic horror moment, mm-hmm. man. Oh, boy. And then when she wakes up, you know, she's groggy, and her husband's acting like nothing happened. You know, she asks about the scratches, and he says, oh, sorry, I was a bit of an animal last night. Yeah. So you're questioning, did that happen? or Was she, she dreaming? Yeah. yeah. Or or was or is Guy right? Was Guy because they were yeah. trying to conceive that night. Yes. Was he, yeah, was he, because apparently she, you like, you drugged and she passed yeah. out. Best and case he, scenario, he raped her in her sleep. Yeah. Worst yeah. case scenario, the devil did it. So yeah. there's no good answer here. No. And <laughs> and then, what do you know, she's pregnant. <sighs> and slowly she starts to learn that the neighbors who've been carry, caring for her this whole time, uh, Ruth Gordon plays uh, Minnie. I don't yeah, who won the Oscar. Yeah, she yeah. won Best Supporting Actress for this. Well-deserved. I don't remember who plays the... Minnie Castavit. Uh, Sydney, Sydney Blackmore. Blackmore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she learns that they may be witches worshipping the devil Mm -hmm. so she starts to think I gotta get the fuck out of this apartment Ruth Gordon to me uh, or Minnie Castavit the character starts a long line of in horror there being a female character who's not not a main part of the movie well is a main part but is a supporting is a supporting role is just fucking creepy like we saw just last year with Hereditary Mm -hmm. and Dow did it beautifully it happened it's happened a lot and I think this is one of the reasons it was like that can be a very effective character, like a neighbor or someone who's just kind of... Just look at the omen. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's a great example. The nanny and the omen, yeah. I think, is Ugh, the best example dude, of that. yeah, just fucking... <laughs> and, I, and, like, you know, I want to... Yeah, I think, I think Ruth I Gordon... I think, actually, Mia Farrow played that role in the remake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Holy shit. How perfect. <laughs> we just figured that. We didn't plan We didn't plan that. That's awesome. That's... <laughs> cool. <laughs> Filmgasm. Yeah. We're definitely going to do the omen soon. I love it. Yeah, it's a, that's a beautiful one. Uh, yeah. Rosemary's Baby has an IMDb score of 8.0, which is pretty high for them. Rotten Tomatoes score of 99%. And an 8 for me, but another viewing could easily make it a 9. It's yeah, a fantastic I'd movie. give it a 9, for sure. Pushing a 10, because it is just... Yeah. It freaks the shit out of me. In addition does. to its Oscar win for uh, Ruth Gordon, it also scored a nomination for Adapted Screenplay. Bam. Making it one of the few horror films Love to, it. Uh, to score nominations. So cool. So all of you people who think that uh, the Academy never looks at horror, they did it in the fucking 60s and they can do it again. I think they will. <laughs> we have to keep pushing. We have to yes, keep believing. Uh, and we also have to keep going to these movies to make sure that they're seen and that we care about them, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know. Horror, I think, is the most overlooked genre. That's why we, That's why I started this podcast. Yes. Because horror yeah. movies deserve to be seen and deserve the same respect that other film genres get cuz it's the most creative genre you can do whatever There's you no want. There's no fucking rules. You can if you want, you can have the devil come and rape a girl. Like yeah. if you want to do that, you can it's, go there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying every I'm not saying every filmmaker wants to do that, but <laughs> Maybe I'm saying don't start you can't at devil yeah. rape. 
but you might want to start out with a couple ghosts first, yeah, or, or like some blood. But yeah, oh man, yeah, fucking uh, so good. Yeah. So I could talk. Yeah, we're, Rosemary's Baby. There's gonna be a film, guys. I'm on yeah. Rosemary's Baby. We're gonna in the do one in the future. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, in 1969, tragedy struck. Yeah. And uh, Roman Polanski's pregnant wife Sharon Tate, along with three friends of hers and an 18 year old visitor, were brutally murdered by the Manson family at 150 Celo Drive in Los Angeles. Unbelievable. Charles Manson was angry at a record producer, Terry Melcher, who had snubbed his demo tape. Manson, knowing Melcher had once rented that house, sent his followers to, quote, totally destroy everyone in it as gruesome as you can. The death of Sharon Tate shattered Roman Polanski and left him devastated. In his autobiography, he writes, quote, Since Sharon's death, however, and despite appearances to the contrary, my enjoyment of life has been incomplete. In moments of unbearable personal tragedy, some people find solace in religion. In my case, the opposite happened. Any religious faith I had was shattered by Sharon's murder. It reinforced my faith in the absurd. Mm. I'm not going to go into too much detail on the Sharon Tate murder, as I do want to go into it further in the future on another filmgasm. But needless to say, Sharon's death greatly affected Polanski and left him permanently fractured. For sure. He was For never sure. the same. No, not at all. Because it's not just Sharon. He was, she was eight months pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, he's about to have his, his baby. And yeah. yeah, just absolutely devastating, horrific. And he really just hit the scene like, okay... This guy's a. This guy's here. He is fully arrived yeah. uh, as a director in Hollywood, and oh uh, boy, fucking rough. I mean, for him to go through, you know, World War Two, and then to go through Charles Manson murder is just. Uh, He's un- been through some horror. So fucking life. unlucky. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. So, really, really upsetting. Really sad. And Sharon Tate too. She had a career ahead of her. Man, she had a baby yeah. to have. She had a career. Like, it sucks. It's really sad. It really is tragic, and I do want to fully explore that in the future. Yeah, yeah. Rest in peace, Sharon Tate. Uh, Polanski's next film was an adaptation of Macbeth in 1971. Yeah, I have not seen this, so I'll let you definitely take the reins here. I saw it a long time ago, but I'll, I'll do what I can. Macbeth is the famous play by William Shakespeare in which a scheming lord and his wife murder the king of Scotland and take the crown for themselves after receiving a prophecy from three witches. The film stars John Finch as Macbeth and Francesca Annis as Lady Macbeth. The film is quite a violent adaptation, and a lot of people think that Sharon's murder influenced Polanski's views on violence. When crew members suggested to Roman Polanski that perhaps the film was too unrealistically gory for its own good, Polanski reportedly replied, quote, I know violence. You should have seen my house last summer. He was broken. Whew. Jeez, man. Macbeth has an IMDb score of 7.5. A Rotten Tomato score of 86%. Mm-hmm. I watched it once in high school and I enjoyed it, but I, I regrettably was not able to get to it for the podcast. So I can't really tell you that much about it. I do remember enjoying it. Of course, it's a Macbeth, so you don't need, like, you know. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a Macbeth. Yeah. But it was very violent. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a Polanski twist, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I feel like Polanski chose this for a reason. It was a project he didn't have to work very hard on the script for. You know, it was already. Set in stone. I feel yeah. like it was something he could t- use to take his mind off what happened. For sure. I, I agree. And the violence, you know... I mean, can you blame the guy? <laughs> no, Just no. After what no. he saw. I, yeah, two years later? No, yeah. you can't. No. Ugh. Uh, Polanski followed Macbeth with the biggest flop of his career, a 1972 comedy called What?, which IMDb calls, quote, an absurd, decadent, oversexed version of Alice in Wonderland with Marcello Mastri- Mastroianni as the maddest of Mad Hatters 
and Roman Polanski as a kinky March hare. It has an IMDb score of 5.8 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 20%. Didn't think it worth checking out for the podcast. No! I just, yeah. Yeah, I literally said the title when I read those numbers. I was like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> so, Yikes. That, that was his, I think his biggest... Uh, flop? Yeah, his biggest flop yeah. is... Uh, like the lowest just let down just yeah. a let down yeah but Polanski would follow it Ooh. with the film that many consider to be his undisputed masterpiece and one of the greatest cinematic achievements of all time 1974's Chinatown yeah oh, <laughs> here we go shit. <laughs> Chinatown stars Jack Nicholson as private detective Jake Giddis who is lured into a murder plot connected to Los Angeles' water supply Faye Dunaway and John Huston co-star in this neo-noir masterwork that scored an Oscar win for original screenplay and an additional 10 nominations, mm-hmm. including Best Picture, Best Actor for Nicholson, Best Actress for Dunaway, Best Director for Polanski, Cinematography, Art Direction, Costume Design, Sound Mixing, Film Editing, and Original Score for Jerry Goldsmith. It has an IMDb score of 8.2, a Rotten Tomatoes score of 98%, and an 8 from me. Take it away. 10 from me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fucking massive fan. Uh, wow. I just watched this again. I've seen this plenty of times, but I just watched it again a couple nights ago. Uh, Roman's at the top of his game here where it, it really keeps you on your toes the entire time even if you watch it again like rewatch it you're still kind of like oh shit man I forgot forgot quite how mysterious this movie is oh yeah and Jack Nicholson is about to take over the country acting wise he's about to take over Hollywood oh with you know One for the Cuckoo's Nest and The Shining yeah, following this up was right the after. beginning of his this rise is, and, the, and this is arguably you know he, he went after it in this one uh, there, the scene the scene when he's in the barbershop and he's like, an honest living, I tell you, an honest living. <laughs> I, Jack Nevison showed us right there, like, oh shit, this guy's got some, he's got some range, man. And, he, and, and Faye Dunaway, too. I, all right, spoiler, really, really stop listening, because you have to see this movie, and I don't want to ruin it for you. But the fact that Faye Dunaway gets shot in the, in the head, and then through the face at the end of the movie is like, who does that? Who makes a film and does that? And this movie has a massive incest subplot. Yeah. Which is fucked up. It's crazy. It's fucking crazy. Noah Cross, John Huston, is fucking creepy as all hell. Like, he's just as scary as some of this shit in Rosemary's Baby. It's just as nasty and like, ugh. And when you start slowly finding out this stuff through Jack's perspective, and he gets involved personally with, you know... Uh, oh man, it gets it gets very intense, like very sweaty, and like oh boy, like it's a much more vicious human threat. And actually, fun fact: Polanski has a cameo in this as the thug who slices yes, Jake's nose, which is which is a pretty good scene. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roman does a good job. He's pretty creepy. He's, he definitely has like short man syndrome in that scene. And he's like, <laughs> "Come on, come on, you know, what do you got? The next time I'll be the whole nose." Yeah, it's great, dude. <laughs> Chinatown is a masterpiece. Yeah, and it was during Chinatown that Polanski became good friends with Jack Nicholson. Yes. And later it would actually be at his house that Polanski would instigate his uh, sexual assault incident in 1977. And uh, fun fact, Jack Nicholson would go on to direct a sequel to Chinatown in 1990 called The Two Jakes, which was written by Robert Town, who wrote the first film. There was a third film planned, but the poor reception of The Two Jakes stopped that from ever happening. And uh, I haven't seen The Two Jakes. I'd like to. Yeah, uh, yeah. I know Harvey Keitel's in it. Mm-hmm. It's got a really solid cast. I don't really know what could have gone wrong. I don't know either. Other than I guess I guess Roman was the man to direct JJ. I don't know. I guess yeah. I don't know. But uh, and funnily enough, the uh, the third film they recycled the plot and used it in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, <laughs> the whole freeway thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Oh man, I love I love movies. Yeah, me too. Chinatown had the exact same amount of nominations as Godfather Part Two. Yeah, at the forty seventh Academy Awards. That let that settle in for a second. That's pretty wild. <laughs> Definitely didn't beat it, but hey, it had the same amount. That's that's incredible. Talk about Clash of the Titans right oh there. Oh my gosh, seriously. Because China, Chinatown, <laughs> arguably, if you put it any other year surrounding, I think the year before is The Sting. Like and The next year is like Rocky. I think it would have beat either of those. So Actually, next year was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Then it was, and then Rocky was what? <laughs> yeah, a couple 76. years. 76. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. So, uh, one Flew Over is pretty tough, yeah. yeah. <laughs> pretty tough to beat. Yeah. 70s was a good year. It, is. it really is. It really is. Yeah. There's some classic stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Deer Hunter. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> French Connection. <laughs> Yeah, so my, so yeah, Fuck, so, so, so my favorite shit. Yeah, we might have to just talk about the seventies. No, yeah. All right, moving on. Yeah, in nineteen seventy six, Polanski finished his apartment trilogy with The Tenant, in which he stars as Trelkovsky, a quiet man who rents an apartment in which the previous tenant committed suicide. Slowly, he starts to go mad and becomes paranoid that his neighbors are trying to turn him into the woman who died. There's an IMDb score of seven point seven. Fucking Rotten Tomatoes score of ninety percent. I don't get that at all, man. And I give it a six. I don't fucking get it. Yeah, the tenant, the tenant, I think could have been good. It probably had some some tools to be good, but I, overall, yeah. it's not. It's not a, not that great of a film. In my research, I found out that this is Bruce Campbell's favorite horror movie. I don't. I don't oh, understand. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> How? It's not really a horror film until like no. the last half hour. Yeah. Until yeah. Until yeah. And even the, then, like barely. The third, the third act. Yeah, I guess would be. But mostly, you're just watching Roman Polanski lose his fucking mind. Yeah. And dress in drag. Yeah. It's a yeah. very strange film. It is. Yeah. It's kind of a tough sit through. Like I don't know. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't want to like watch it with other people either, though. So <laughs> I wouldn't want to watch most of his films with other people. No. No. Chinatown. Yeah. Chinatown. And yeah. Carnage probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Carnage is hilarious. Yeah. You could yeah. show that to people. Yeah. I don't want to be the guy. Frantic. Frantic too. Frantic's. Frantic's not. It's not. But too, I, don't I don't want know. to be the guy bringing a Roman Polanski film to the party. <laughs> Like, check out this 1988 yeah. Frantic that nobody saw. Yeah. <laughs> check it out. Ugh. You're like, oh, why do, why do you have that? Yeah. I don't know. Then again, most people just don't do the homework we've done. So That's true. Whatever. Yeah. So, 1977, the year of the incident. Yep. And I found a time a timeline on APnews.com that'll Good tell stuff, you exactly yeah. what happened and when. I'm going to read out the timeline, and then I'm going to point out some excerpts in his autobiography that deal directly with what happened. Perfect. The timeline starts in 1977, takes us through the attempted appeals and extraditions all the way to 2019. March 10th, 1977, Roman Polanski conducts a photo shoot with a 13-year-old girl at Jack Nicholson's house. As she later testifies, Polanski gives the girls champagne and part of a sedative during the shoot, then forced her to have sex. She says she repeatedly told Polanski no during intercourse, but says she did not fight him because she was afraid of him. The girl's mother calls the police after finding out what happened. March 24, 1977. A grand jury indicts Polanski on six felony charges, including rape, furnishing a controlled substance to a minor, and sodomy. He later pleads not guilty at arraignment. Angelica Houston, who was a witness to the incident, testified against Polanski. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Unbelievable. <laughs> she just happened to be there. I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan, so I love, uh, I love her, man. <laughs> she testified against Polanski in exchange for making a minor drug charge disappear. Polanski said in his autobiography that he never blamed her for testifying against him because he put her in a bad situation. Yes. August. I'd say so. Oh, yeah. Fuck. (laughs) Wonder what Jack thought. Cops raided his house. Yeah, well, fuck. He stood up for him in 2003, so. (laughs) 
August 1977, Polanski pleads guilty to unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor, and a judge orders the director to undergo further proceedings. September 77, a judge orders the director to undergo a 90-day diagnostic screening at a California state prison to help determine sentencing. January 78, the diagnostic Almost screen- a full year yeah. of this shit, man. Yeah. The Fuck. diagnostic screening completed after 42 days recommends Polanski be placed on probation. Yep. He's released from Chino. February 1st, 78. Polanski flees the United States on the eve of sentencing after learning that Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Lawrence Rittenban intended to send Polanski back to prison. An arrest warrant is issued, confining Polanski's movements to France, Poland, and Switzerland. Polanski alleges Rittenban met with a prosecutor who was not assigned to the case without Polanski's lawyer present to discuss sentencing. So... Was this judge out to get Polanski, or was it like was this legal? Like, could was this allowed? I don't know. Ah, uh, yeah, it's tough. I don't know enough about. It's tough. Maybe this judge, yeah, just hate didn't like the guy. Didn't like. Polanski. He might have wanted to make an example out of yeah. Polanski. Yeah, which uh, which maybe would have helped later on things, you know, like in in the film industry. But uh, unfortunately, that's not the way it went. Yeah, Polanski's yet to return to the United States. He's been in Europe ever since. So wanted fugitive still, yeah. If he sets foot on U.S. soil, he will be arrested. (laughs) He ain't coming back. September 97. A new judge meets with prosecutors and Polanski's attorney to discuss the case in chambers. The meeting is not reported, and elements of this discussion remain in dispute. Polanski's attorney contends the judge wanted Polanski's sentencing hearing televised, which the judge denies. Prosecutors contend Polanski sought to be sentenced without reporters present, which the director denies. November 2002. Lawyers for Condenast Publications successfully unseal grand jury testimony presented in Polanski's case. March 2003. Polanski wins the Best Director Academy Award for The Pianist, but is unable to collect his Oscar in person due to an outstanding warrant for his arrest. The only time that has ever happened in Academy history, the winner has been a wanted fugitive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 20 plus years later, yeah. Unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. De- December 08. Polanski's lawyers seek a dismissal of the charges against him. His motion is supported by the victim. February 09. A Los Angeles Superior Court judge rejects Polanski's dismissal motion, stating that Polanski must appear in court to resolve his case. The order goes into effect in May 2009. July 2009, Polanski appeals the February ruling in his case. September 09, Polanski is arrested in Switzerland pursuant to a warrant. Extradition proceedings begin. December 09, a California court panel rejects Polanski's appeal, ruling that the director must appear in court to resolve his case. This is... They won't let him know. He has to be there. Yeah. And he's like, I'm not showing up. <laughs> oh, man. January 2010. Something's Pol- wrong with our system, isn't it? <laughs> I don't... Is it, though? I mean, <laughs> Polanski's lawyers reject or request the director be sentenced without being present in Los Angeles. February 2010. A Los Angeles court takes sealed testimony from Roger Gunson, the original prosecutor who handled Polanski's case, about his recollections of the judge's 1977 promises to the director. May 2010, a judge rejects a motion by Polanski's lawyers to unseal Gunson's testimony. July 2010, Switzerland rejects U.S. request to extradite Polanski, citing its inability to obtain the Gunson testimony. December 2014, Polanski's lawyers seek an evidentiary hearing to explore the director's allegations of judicial misconduct in Los Angeles. 
A judge rejects the motion without conducting a hearing. So just to pause for a second, this has been 30 years. Yeah. And it's still, he's still back and forth with extradition and test, you know, appeals. It's like, dude, going, that must be consuming your mind. Like, must be consuming your actions and your thoughts and everything that's going on. Where you keep, yeah, you keep, like, playing these games back and forth. It's like, dude, that's got to be so fucking exhausting. Just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. February 2015, Polanski appears in a Polish court for hours of questioning on whether a U.S. request to extradite the director is valid. October 2015, Polish court rejects an effort to extradite Polanski. May 2016, Poland's new justice minister revives extradition proceedings against Polanski. December 2016, the Polish Supreme Court rules Polanski will not be extradited to the U.S. February 2017, Polanski's attorney seeks an order in Los Angeles to unseal Gunson's testimony, the original prosecutor. Later motions by Polanski seek an order confirming the director should not serve any additional time behind bars if he returns to Los Angeles. Polanski's lawyer relies on information included in a lengthy Polish court decision. April 2017. Jesus, man. We're, we're San- catching up to fucking yeah. now. <laughs> this is still going. <laughs> this is this has not been resolved. Legend. As of now, this has not been oh, resolved. Oh, man. April 2017, a Los Angeles judge rejects Polanski's request to be sentenced without returning to court. <laughs> you gotta be here, man, to <laughs> fucking defend yourself. June 2017, Polanski's victim, Samantha Geimer, appears in a Los Angeles court to ask a judge to end the case, calling it a, quote, 40-year sentence imposed on both her and Polanski. August 2017, Los Angeles judge rejects Geimer's request to end Polanski's case. The victim says, let it go. And the judge is like, no, we're not letting it go. Yeah, the girl who was 13, she's like, I'm 40 now. <laughs> we can drop it. We, <laughs> both her and Polanski just want this shit to, to end. Yeah, to move it's, on. Because it's fucking ruining their lives, both of them. Like, there's no justice for her if he's off doing his thing, making movies, and she has to sit here thinking about it all the time. So, yeah, she, of course, I would do the same thing. Yeah. Just get this shit, move on, let's move on. Clearly, you, clearly y'all aren't going to do anything, like... Let's just drop it. Let's drop it all together. Let him be. Whatever. Oh, it's fucking ridiculous, man. May 3rd, 2018. <sighs> the Film Academy announces that it has expelled Roman Polanski and Bill Cosby, who was convicted of a sex offense a week earlier, from its membership. And then recently, in this past April, Roman Polanski has attempted to sue the Academy over his expulsion, claiming that the Academy's findings are not supported by evidence. Samantha Geimer came to Polanski's defense, saying the decision was, quote, an ugly and cruel action which serves only appearance. She added, it does nothing to change the sexist culture in Hollywood today and simply proves that they will eat their own to survive. I say to Roman, good riddance to bad rubbish. The Academy has no true honor. It's all just PR. And I, I gotta say, you know, I kind of get it. Yeah, I agree oh, with her. for sure. This yeah. is a saving face situation after the Weinstein scandal. This has nothing to do with Justice or Polanski's sta- uh, status as a filmmaker. No. This is about saving face. Which, can you, I mean, you, you gotta save face after Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> right. You don't want to yeah. look like you're ignoring it. Now, in regards to how Polanski himself talks about what happened, here's some excerpts from Roman by Polanski. Okay. I like it. Here we go. So. Uh, what, when did you say this book was written? It was 1984. This was 1984, yeah. So this is Polanski discussing how he initiated the sex. They were swimming, and uh, she said she had asthma, 
and told her, you know, said she had to get out of the hot tub. Uh, What's wrong, I asked. It's written in first person. She said her asthma was playing up. I didn't know you had asthma, I said, and asked if she had anything with her, an inhaler or something. She said she'd stupidly left her medication at home. You shouldn't spend too long in all that steam, I told her. Not if you're asthmatic. Come into the pool. She got out of the jacuzzi and walked toward the pool, but one put one foot in and pronounced it too cold. She was wheezing quite audibly by now. She picked up my towel and said, I'd better rest a while, otherwise I might pass out. When I asked what I should do if she did, she made some flippant remark about mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. I left the pool and followed her into the house. We went into a room on the ground floor. I'd slept there several times in the days when it had been a guest room, but Jack now used it to house his enormous TV set. Of course. The windows were shuttered and the curtains drawn, so the place was almost in darkness. We dried ourselves and each other. She said she was feeling better. Then, very gently, I began to kiss and caress her. After this had gone on for some time, I led her over to the couch. There was no doubt about... She calls her... um, He calls her Sandra in the book. There's no doubt about Sandra's experience and lack of inhibition. She spread herself and I entered her. She wasn't unresponsive. Yet, when I asked her softly if she was liking it, she resorted to her favorite expression, It's alright. While we were still making love, I heard a car in the driveway. It seemed to pass the house, so we carried on. Suddenly, though, Sandra froze. The light on the phone had come on, which meant there was someone else in the house making a call from another room. That stopped us both in our tracks, but it didn't suppress my desire for the girl. After whispered reassurances, Sandra gradually relaxed again. When it was all over, I opened the door a little and looked down the passage. Angelica, I called. This is Angelica Houston. Mm -hmm. I heard her call back Roman and go on talking. From the sound of her voice, she was in the living room. Sandra got dressed quickly and went to the living room to bundle up the rest of the clothes she'd brought. Obviously embarrassed by Angelica's presence, she hurried out through the kitchen to the car. I followed, introducing her as best I could, gesturing and saying I'd be back. Sandra got into the car and sat there. She didn't want to go back inside. I felt I should. When Angelica had finished her phone call, I explained that we'd been taking pictures and swimming. I didn't mention making love in the TV room, though that must have been pretty obvious. Nor did I need to tell her we'd opened a bottle of Jack Champagne. She had a glass of it in her hand. I asked to use the phone and called the Beverly Wilshire to see if there were any messages for me. I also called Hercules Belleville to pick up a working session for the following day. None of this took long. I was conscious of Sandra waiting in the car. Angelica asked why we were rushing off. I told her about Sandra's asthma attack and said I had to get her home. Angelica was on the phone again by the time I left. We waved and smiled. Call you tomorrow, I mouthed. So I drove her home and learned she did not have asthma. She, that was her way of trying to get the fuck out of there. Mm-hmm. But he pressed on. Uh, so according to his word, it was consensual. But of course, that's what he's going to say. Yeah, of course. And this is how many years? Uh, six? Six years or seven years after the fact? Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, of course he's going to state these things. It doesn't surprise me at all that that's how he would go about it. Uh, that's how I think a lot of yeah, humans would go about it. Here's another excerpt. This is uh, when he was arrested. Uh, he was arrested in the hotel lobby. He, uh, he had a quaalude on him. Uh, we, quote. All right, here we go. We were about to leave a lobby through the front door when a man in a bowling shirt walked up to me and flashed a badge. Mr. Polanski, he said quietly. I'm from the Los Angeles Police Department. Can I talk to you? I have a warrant for your arrest. We don't want to create a sensation. Is there someplace we can talk? 
Sure, I said. I still had no inkling of what it was all about. Baffled, I turned to Frank Simon and handed him the theater tickets, saying something about meeting up later, if I can. The man wasn't alone, I saw. He had at least two or three other men with him. It was hard to pick them out in the crowded lobby. I asked him what I was being charged with. He replied in such a discreet undertone that all I caught was the word rape. Rape, I repeated, shocked and bewildered. Forgetting all I'd learned from my New York research, I asked if I could call my lawyer. Sorry, you haven't been booked yet. Let's go up to your room. We have a search warrant. The words were uttered quite dispassionately, without a hint of animosity. So, he was, according to himself, shocked that he was being arrested for rape. Mm -hmm. He didn't see this as rape. He thought it was consensual. And it's not consensual if it's under duress. That's basic shit. Yeah. And she was under duress. Mm -hmm. You know? You can't say no to a famous director in Jack Nicholson's house. With Angelica Houston in the other room. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. She's 13, yeah. Um, alright, here... This is right after he was released after the 42-day sentence and learning he he might be going back. Um... On September 16th, Written Band had told Dalton and Chambers that the diagnostic study in Chino would constitute my punishment. Now, after I'd done my time there, he announced that the report, which recommended probation, was the worst he'd ever seen, a complete whitewash, and that he was determined to send me back inside. I'm getting too much criticism, he confided to Dalton. I'll have to give him an indeterminate sentence. (laughs) Jesus. He also expressed surprise that I'd spent only 42 out of a possible 90 days in prison. This was almost absurdly disingenuous, since he knew as well as anyone that the average time for a diagnostic study in custody was around 47 days. But Rittenban wasn't even prepared to sentence me to an additional 48 days, as the DA himself suggested, to make up the 90 he now said I should have served in full. He stated that the appearance of a state prison sentence must be maintained for the benefit of the press. You, Dalton, will argue for probation. You, Gunson, will argue for prison. I'll impose an indeterminate sentence and release him after 90 days if you make the motion. At the same time, however, Rittenband was singing the press a different song. He would release me after another 48 days, he said, but only if I agreed to voluntary deportation. It was not, of course, within the judge's discretion to decide whether or not I should be deported. In effect, he was employing a form of blackmail, compelling me to request deportation so as to cut short prison term that could, depending on his whim, have dragged on for years. So... Knowing that, what do you think about his decision to flee? Think about it from, like, a neutral perspective or, for, like, from him, from his... I don't know. I mean, if you committed a crime and yeah. you served time for it and then found out the judge wanted to throw you back in prison for just to make I a I might statement, try to leave if I could, yeah. I'd try to get the fuck out of there, yeah, too. Yeah, especially, especially if I had somewhere to go. Yeah. Um, I, I personally don't have, like, oh, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't have, have a pl- plan for that. But Yeah, I can't just be like, all right, I'm going to go to Paris now. Um, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, if I had that, I, yeah, I of course. I think I think a lot of people would be lying if they said, no, I'll just wait it out. Let, let them put me in prison for however many years. No. If you had a chance to leave, for sure. Yeah. You're putting that, yeah, you're a human. You don't want to be in prison. Come on. Yeah, so, uh, but, but, yeah, obviously you, you look at him and you're like, oh, pansy you know, like you're running from exactly what you did but uh, it's fucking tough man yeah i <laughs> i don't know i don't really know where to stand on this all right here's uh, the final excerpt from the book this is polanski discussing the nature of his current legal situation mm-hmm. as it stands now good stuff here uh, the case was reassigned to judge paul breckenridge 
I've never sentenced anyone in absentia before in my life, he declared, and I don't intend to do so now. Breckenridge removed the case from the calendar, adding, If and when he returns, I'll ask for a new probation report, and we'll deal with it then. This, that is how things stand today. Were I to return to the United States, I should be arrested on arrival and held without bail. The reopening of the case would entail a new probation report and might even mean another diagnostic study in Chino. The fact of my having become a fugitive from justice would also be taken into account, but so, in all probability, would be the affidavit charging Judge Rittenband with bias, prejudice, and unprofessional conduct. In any case, my return itself would present a problem. Soon after I arrived in Paris, my multiple entry visa to the United States was declared invalid. Yep. So that's Polanski's views on everything. And I got, I, I'm siding with, with Samantha. I think he pressured her, and I think he's suffering for it. That's just, that, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, man, just don't put yourself in this fucking situation to begin with. Don't. He was, in, she was 13. Exactly. And, and yo, where's Samantha's parents at, man? Like. They let her, all right, to be, I, I read that in the book, too. They knew what he was, like, they, they knew it was a photo shoot for, like, a young models thing, which Why? already is sketchy as fuck. Why would you do that? Yeah. If you don't know this person, it. And this, you know, we saw this when the, the Michael Jackson documentary came out. Same shit. Like, why are these parents just letting their kids hang on this stranger? Like, Because it's not a stranger. It's Michael fucking Jackson. And it's Roman Polanski. Yeah. yeah. It's getting your kid close to fame. It's getting your kid close to fortune. That's so selfish, man. It's incredibly selfish. I have a daughter now, and I just can't fucking imagine putting her in a spot. Ugh, man. I can't imagine. Yeah. Obviously, now we, you know, it's 2019. We have way more, you know... Um, you know, uh, we have education on these kinds of things now, and this is in the 70s when this happened, but still, man, like, you just gotta think, yeah, Samantha's parents, when you're a 13-year-old girl, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know, who can you really trust? It's fucking tough, man. Uh, and, of course, yeah, and of course, Polanski, like, dude, like, don't, don't caress and kiss her, even if she's, like, down with it or whatever. There's there's other directors who defend him. There's other if she people... had been, like, 25, this still would have been wrong. That's the point. Yes. This was race. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Ha, yeah, yeah, exactly. If she would... Yeah, because he was like in his fucking 40s. If, yeah, I think he was like 44, so... She was not into it. She was trying to get out of it, and yeah. he forced her into it. He she said it's all right. Yeah. Come on, man. That's that her should, trying very hard not to cry right that now. That should be a sign. Yeah, like... Uh, yeah, oh, boy. I... Uh, yeah, that's rough, dude. Yeah. It's disgusting. I mean, yeah, it's fucking disgusting. It's And it sucks, and it's terrible that that happened to her... I've heard Samantha talk now, you know, uh, on YouTube videos and whatnot, and documentaries, and you know, yeah, like you said, you have to you have to side with her, otherwise you're you're kind of a creep. So, um, yeah, this is where you have to. This is where it becomes all right. It's time to. Well, I do think that it was straight up rape, and I do think she deserves justice. I want them to end it. I want them uh, yeah, to just agree. let this agree. And I'm, I'm with her. I'm with her. Like, all right, it's gone on for forty years. Like, let's yeah. just fucking drop it. Clearly, nothing. You know, nothing's. Gonna He's happen. not coming back. No. There, it's not going to happen. Like, no. let's just let them both move on. He's approach. He's like, what is he like, eighty something now? He's like, in his seventies, I think. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's born in thirty three. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, I mean, yeah, come on, he's old man. Uh, whatever, whatever. Well, after Polanski fled to Paris, mm -hmm. he began work on his nineteen seventy nine film Tess, which he made as a love letter to Sharon, which is like a genius film. It like, is a genius film, man. It's unlike anything he'd done before. Nope. Yeah. Uh, Sharon had loved the Thomas Hardy novel Tess of the Durbervilles, and yeah. he knew she knew that one day her husband would make a terrific movie out of it. 
And it's sad that she never got to see the movie. Really sucks, yeah. The film follows Tess Derbyfield. But how, would he have made it if... That's true. If all this stuff didn't happen. Would he have made it, yeah. And would it have been as good? You know? I don't know. Because Tess is a, is a great film. This movie is kind of an amalgamation of all the shit he's been through mm-hmm. from, you know, then to now. And it's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, Natasha Kinski, uh, daughter Fantastic, of man. famous psycho Klaus Kinski, yeah. which we will definitely talk about one day. Uh, she plays Tess Derbyfield, a strong-willed peasant girl who attracts the affection of two men, one she hates and one that she loves above all things, but can't love her back. The film is remarkable and utterly depressing, but it won three Oscars, cinematography, art direction, and costume design, scored three additional nominations for Best Picture, Best Original Score for Philip Sard, and most unusually, Best Director for Roman Polanski. Huh. During his flea. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This had just happened, man. This had just happened. So, what are your thoughts on why the Academy was so quick to forgive Polanski's highly publicized sexual assault Uh, and flee from justice? Yeah, I don't understand. Uh, Surely if this happened today, because of the internet, because of the power of how fast information moves, there's just no fucking way. And I really don't understand it here, because this is not 100 years ago. This is late, almost the 80s. Uh, I don't understand it. I really don't understand how... The Academy, who's supposed to be this, you know, I, I, I'll talk about the Academy all day. You know, I, uh, I I do love the Oscars, and I do respect some of the things they've done. But Jesus Christ, man, this that's low. That's really low, because there's so many other directors. I'm not going to name them, because I don't want to just straight up compare. So many other directors, if they did that, they'd just be fucking gone, annexed from. Immediately. From, they might, might be able to make movies, but there's no fucking way they're winning an Oscar. Um I, I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. He's foreign. He's white. He's male. He's rich. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know. But Tess is a great movie. <laughs> it is. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. If it was any. Yeah. If, if Spielberg directed that. Yeah. It should definitely be up and win stuff. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. And I guess that's where the Oscars decided for us. We are going to separate the art from the creator now. They decided for us. They like kind that. of decided for us, yeah. and they did it like that. Uh, man, it's tough. It's tough. It's. I would be a little bit more okay with it if they didn't try to get rid of him now. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? After all this time? Mm-hmm. What was okay with it then? And, you know, yeah. oh, so 1979, it's okay to rape a 13-year-old, and now and it's not? Like, I don't know. That is, it doesn't seem that doesn't seem fair or consistent at all. Like, it doesn't. Whatsoever. Uh, I, I, I personally don't think Roman Polanski should ever be awarded anything, uh, in my opinion. I do think he should be able to make films if he's legally living in Europe. Go for it. I love your. I love some of your films. Go for yeah. it. Make stuff. If you want to be creative, do that. But, but if you come here, you're going to be arrested for rape. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, and I don't. I just yeah. don't think you should reward someone when there's other people doing. I don't know. That's just my opinion. Yeah. Especially when you have that knowledge, like <laughs> you have that in your head. Like we've known that for a long time, man. Like for for thirty something years, we've known yeah. that he did that. So. Ugh. Yikes. Polanski <laughs> followed Tess with 1986's Pirates. Another massive bomb. Star- a big gap in between. Yeah, uh, 79 I would and love to know what was going on yeah, with, with the guy there. Probably like, I'm going to prison one day. Yeah. <laughs> like, how yeah. do I get out of this? Probably, probably more paranoid than he was in the tenant. Yeah. 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 Probably. That was probably the actual real tenant that we wanted to see was like this guy just freaking out over. I would pay these- money to see a movie about his life. Oh, about me all of too. this. And it definitely, I think definitely could happen. Uh, that would be incredible. Who knows who will play him. I know that Polanski is going to be played by somebody in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be very yeah. interesting to see how, he, how Tarantino does that. I'm trying that. to think, who, who would you, if we had a movie about Polanski, like what young actor could 
Oof. Could pull that kind of like that long hair, kind of like he's so short too. You put some makeup on Tom Holland, I think he could do it. Hey, that's a good call. A little bit, yeah. Put a little, little yeah. Make him grow the hair out. That's a good. Call. I think he could. Do I kind of like that. I bet Tom Holland could do a could do an accent too. I think we've yeah. He's just holy starting shit. Out. That's a good call. We're gonna see some. Hey, we'll him. make that movie if Tom Holland comes <laughs> comes a call. And we'll we'll make that one yeah. for you. Roman by Polanski, the motion picture. <laughs> I hate that title. It's so pretentious. <laughs> it really is. Like, what the fuck? Ugh. Whatever, man. Well, Pirates. Massive failure. He wanted Jack Nicholson, but Jack Nicholson, quote, wanted more. Mm-hmm. Blansky kept, you know, throwing out numbers, and he just said, like, all right, Jack, what the hell do you want? He just went, I want more. I, well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm about to play the Joker, you know, in 1989. He, you know, Jack Nicholson was the king, so, yeah. Yeah, he could demand whatever the hell he yeah, wanted. Yeah, yeah. And uh, though Pirate scored an Oscar nomination for costume design, it was regarded as a failure. It has an IMDb score of 6.1 and a mm. Rotten Tomatoes score of 33%. E. I haven't seen it. Don't plan to. Neither have I. Couldn't really find it for this podcast. That one and what? I'm, I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. Uh, so after Pirates came 1988's Frantic. Oh, yeah. One of Polanski's best films. It stars Harrison Ford as Dr. Richard Walker, whose wife vanishes during their trip to Paris. Dr. Walker's search for his wife leads him to Michelle, a drug mule who agrees to help him find his wife since she knows some of what's going on. It has an IMDb score of 6.9, Rotten Tomatoes score of 78%, and I give it an 8. I really enjoyed Frantic. Yeah, I think 8's fair. Yeah, I, I think Frantic has a lot to offer and uh, very unique, very unique stuff. And to get Harrison Ford, who's at the tippy top of his game, yeah, where he's he is, oh, he's ruling things right now. This was sandwiched between Patriot Games and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And, and Han Solo. Yeah, this was <laughs> you know? his, he yeah. didn't have to do this film, he no. wanted to do this film. Exactly, yeah, he wanted to make, yeah, he wanted to make this work and yeah, he did a damn good job. There's some stuff, there's some scenes on the roof, they're like famous, <laughs> you know, famous Paris roof scenes that are oh, a blast, absolute blast. Definitely, I think this is definitely one that after you watch or after you listen to the podcast, this is one we leave you with. Like, you should watch that. Absolutely, frantic is one of those. And it's Harrison Ford's role is so just vulnerable. Yeah, he's lost. He's scared. And know? we're not used to that. We're not we're used, we're used to, Harrison to the hero. Being a man. We're used yeah. to Han Solo, not yeah. this guy. And uh, you can see little things he would use later in the Fugitive. Harrison Ford in his yeah, performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, this is where Polanski met his second wife, Emmanuel Signer. Who played Michelle in the film and would become his second muse? Hmm. She's been in almost all of his films since. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder how does how does she like forgive forgive him for his past? I don't know. Ah, she married him. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. She clearly <laughs> yeah. did. She clearly said, you know, you're you're you know. This is gonna sound bad, but I mean, she's French. <laughs> <laughs> now let me explain that. Yeah, go for it. That <laughs> <Okay>. was great. <laughs> so. This okay. might sound bad. So, <laughs> All right. I could just see that sound bite coming back to haunt me years yeah, from now. That was great. So, so the French typically have, you know, different views on sex than for we For sure, do. for sure. So yeah. I think... No, I, I know exactly yeah. where you're coming. It was just funny that you yeah, said Yeah, I know. <laughs> out of context, that's a fucking yeah. horrific thing to say. I've heard some crazy <laughs> shit out of context, so... I, yeah. I, yeah, that was funny. I don't know. I think Emmanuel Signer, from what I've seen about her, she's almost as weird as he is. Y- yeah. W- which is ultimately, I guess, what it comes down to. Yeah. yeah. So she accepted him and he accepted her. Yeah. Yeah. So after Frantic was 1992's Bitter Moon... A drama about a cruise ship passenger who develops an infatuation with the wife of a paraplegic. It stars Peter Coyote, he of the greatest name ever, Emmanuel Signer, Hugh Grant, and Kristen Scott Thomas. Regrettably, I was not able to get to this one for the podcast. I saw this one quite some time ago, but 
I don't, I don't think I have an opinion on it, or you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it's not something I could yeah could recommend. Huh? Yeah, I can write. Which hap- kind of happens a lot with his movies. Like that's true. Like Fierce <laughs> Vampire Killers five years from now, I don't remember shit. Dude, I than... saw it like two weeks ago. I barely remember. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Uh, IMDb score of seven point two, Rotten Tomatoes score sixty four. Not bad. Wish I could tell you more, but yeah. yeah, we didn't get to see this one. No, there's still a lot to get to. So yeah. Next was 1994's Death and the Maiden, starring Sydney, uh, Sigourney Weaver as a political activist and Ben Kingsley as the man she kidnaps because she thinks he once tortured her on government orders. IMDb score of 7.3, Rotten Tomatoes score of 84%, and I really wish I could have seen this one. Yeah, we will. Like, we'll yeah. find it someday. Someday we will, because I think this yeah. is going to be one of our favorites. Right now, it's impossible to find. For most of these films, we relied on Netflix through the mail, which I still do. Yeah, what and do we... What, I think we own... We own most of these. I, I own, yeah, I own, you know, Rosemary and Chinatown, those pianists, yeah. those big ones. But and what we couldn't get, we used Netflix and Amazon Video. Yeah. But Death and the Maiden wasn't available through either one of those. Sucks. So this one's going to be a tough bird to find. I would have had no problem spending whatever I had to yeah. to watch that. Because it looks very intriguing. Oh, I yeah. Really see uh, Sigourney Weaver? Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. And Ben Kingsley as yeah. like a, you know, government torturer, possibly? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Polanski followed Death and the Maiden with 1999's The Ninth Gate. Yeah. His return to devil worship and one of his biggest letdowns, in my opinion. Yeah. Johnny Depp stars a Dean Corso, a rare book dealer, who is recruited by wealthy collector Boris Balkin, played by Frank Langella, to authenticate his most recent purchase, one of three copies of The Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows, a book supposedly influenced by a book written by Satan himself. So already, fucking awesome concept. Yeah, the tools are there. The tools yeah. are there. You got Johnny Depp, you got a really cool story. Yeah. I just, eh. Corso's journey takes him to Portugal and France, where he learns some disturbing truths about the ancient text. The film co-stars Emmanuel Signer and Lena Olin, and is fantastically thrilling until the third act, where everything goes off the rails. IMDb score of 6.7, Rotten Tomatoes score of 43, and a 6 from me. The Ninth Gate had the potential to be one of the creepiest, coolest movies the op- like the opening credits are unnerving as fuck. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, it just there were so many ways it could have gone, and it just took the worst possible one. Yeah, Look, I, yeah, I agree. Uh, Polanski, there's something. It, like, why why couldn't he? It seemed like there's a few of his films. Uh, the things are there. Everything's there for you. What, yeah. What's what happened? What especially like you said, you know, the title sequence is unnerving, and there's stuff that's really good. Yeah. The first half of the movie, it just fucking stops. Like. I would argue that I think Roman Polanski, I think, other than, like, Alfred Hitchcock, Polanski does paranoia better than anybody. Like, just, what is going on, and yeah. who's after me? Mm-hmm. And I think almost every single one of his films deals with paranoia in some... In some manner. In some yeah. manner. And yeah. he's, he's really good at that. He is. He is. That's, that, that, that's kind of his tone. His tone would be confusion. And, yeah. And, yeah, wa- kind of wandering, like, what the, you know. I I, know. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Alright, so Polanski's next film would be the one that would finally net him Oscar gold. Alright. 2002's The Pianist, starring Adrian Brody as real-life Polish-Jewish musician Ladislaw Spillman. Spillman! <laughs> so good. The Pianist is a harrowing look at the Holocaust through the eyes of one man as he struggles to survive after losing his entire family to the Nazis. It's based on Spillman's true account of his struggle, and it took him three Oscars, director for Polanski, best actor for Adrian Brody, and adapted screenplay. In addition, it scored four more nominations for Best Picture, Cinematography, Costume Design, and Film Editing. P- 
Polanski lived through the Holocaust in Poland, and you could feel his personal touch on this film, especially. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Literally, literally watching Adrian Brody slither his way through the ghetto, like oh my trying god. just it, it. This movie is fucking sad. Uh, it's oh man. Especially it's, since this is a true story. Yeah. This, this yeah. really happened. Yeah, and, and Adrian Brody. I have no qualms with him winning, uh, oh, winning that. Well deserved. He was un- unbelievable. See, that's where I don't necessarily have a problem. Like Adrian Brody playing a role in one of Polanski's films, but I don't know if you should award Polanski for director. Yeah, I yeah. Do you I think? Agree. Do you agree with that? I agree because, or should you just annex it completely and just be like, no, like nothing that you make can be, you know? Or do you think there should be some 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 rules there? I don't know. It's a, it's it's it's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, because you look at you know. Polanski, he was heavily involved in these movies. Mm-hmm. These are his movies. Oh yeah. So, oh yeah. Without an, Polanski, the yeah. pianist is not. Yes. Yeah, are the not. movies an extension of himself? But then again, you can take the same stance with Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. who produced thousands oh, of the most well-received movies in mm-hmm. history. So, are those all permanently tainted now too? It's it's tough to really make a decision there. It's really tough. But I think Adrian Brody's performance is. Legendary. I oh, didn't yeah. like him until I saw this movie, frankly. I didn't think he was a good actor <laughs> until I saw The Pianist, and now I've done it pretty much a 180 on the guy. Oh, man. I um, love Adrian Brody. <laughs> well, again, because Wes Anderson. I think, uh, well, Doug yeah. Jeeling, Grand Budapest Hotel. I liked him in Grand Budapest. Yeah, so I, I but I just feel spot. like Adrian Brody wasted his post-Oscar bump. Yeah. I think he... I think so, too. Yeah. I think so, too. I think he got an ego, and it bit him yeah. in the ass. Oh, he definitely has an ego. One hundred percent has an ego. Uh, he's an actor's actor, like yeah. kind of pretentious. Actor. Yeah, actor. One of those people. <laughs> One of those guys. But you know, he got he has an Oscar now. That's really cool. He's pretty young when that happened. He had to be. I think he's the youngest guy to win Best Actor. One of them, anyway. He's gotta be right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna look it up while you. Yeah, yeah I'm gonna look that up just so for shits the, and giggles. <laughs> the pianist has an IMDb score of eight point five, Rotten Tomato score of ninety five, and I give it an eight. Yeah, I give I it. I give it like a nine. Yeah, I, I I have a top five releasing soon on. Yeah, you know, that'll be up uh, probably the night after the podcast goes up, so Wednesday night, and you can check out Austin's top five there. Hell yeah! Uh, so next was Polanski's 2005 take on Charles Dickens' immortal classic Oliver Twist, starring Barney Clark as Oliver, Ben Kingsley as Fagin, and a host of British theatre actors rounding out the rest of the cast. It has an IMDb score of 6.9 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 60%. And I'm going to be totally honest here. I don't really know the story of Oliver Twist, as I've never read it, nor have I seen any version of it on film that wasn't a Disney cat. So, I can't really... <laughs> I've never read it either. Yeah. It's never... not, I, I don't know why. Just... I don't know. I guess I didn't take a Dickens class in college, so I never had to read him. But I'm sure it's great. And if you want to see Roman Polanski's take on Oliver Twist, this is the film to watch. We did not watch it, so there you go. In 2008, a documentary about Polanski's scandalous ways was released, titled Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired, and I believe you got the chance to see that, so what are your thoughts on that documentary? Yeah, I I watched this, this was huge, like, this is when I was, like, really starting to, probably in, like, 2015, 16, somewhere in there, when I was really turning from, I like films, to films are, like, a massive part of my life. And I remember remember thinking, I gotta know more about directors and like who's behind the camera. And I was just on HBO Go and I, like you know on my phone. And I saw the documentary. I watched it. I was I was working at the airport in Houston. I watched the whole thing. I was just fucking glued. And uh, all I had seen was Rosemary in Chinatown at the time. 
Um, and after that, I just was like, holy shit, this guy, there's no one like him. There's no one. And you have got to see, if you're interested at all, if you're still listening, if you're interested in what we're talking about, you fucking have to see this. And uh, I know Connor's going to watch it as soon yes. as he can. It is, well, boy, it's powerful. There's some footage in there that would really help, like, visually uh, aid you with, you know, some of the stuff from the book and some of the stuff that we're talking about. Um, stuff straight from the 70s, footage from the 70s, and uh, footage from the house. Uh, it's frightening. It's frightening stuff, but it's also very good and very uh, informative. So I definitely think everyone should see that uh, to have to have the full scope of, you know, who the guy is. It's probably the best documentary about him. Uh, it's more, or the, most, the highest quality, I guess. You know, yeah. there might be some better content out there, but highest quality, HBO, well done as usual. Fantastic! Yeah, I will definitely. Make yeah, a point oh to check yeah, you yeah, definitely. You got yeah. I know you won't be able to <laughs> help yourself. Yeah, after all this, <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, I need yeah. to know. Yeah. <laughs> Polanski's next film was 2010's The Ghost Rider, not counting a cameo appearance in 2007's Rush Hour Three, in which he unceremoniously gives Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker a full cavity search yeah. in the Paris yeah, airport. Yeah. Just because, oh, why not? <laughs> Actually, I'm going to be totally honest. That was my introduction to Roman Polanski. Hey, wow. All right. I didn't know who the fuck that was. It might have been mine, too, without knowing. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it definitely was. Like, who's that weird little Frenchman kid. shoving his finger up Chris Tucker's ass? <laughs> He's so short. He's so tiny that, like, you're like, what the fuck is that? Because <laughs> oh, they filmed it in Paris, which means he could be involved because it's not in the United States. The Ghost Rider stars Ewan McGregor. Oh, really? Back, all right, back to Adrian Brody for a second. God damn it. <laughs> so, Rami Malek actually is the youngest actor yeah. to win Best I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't think about that because it just happened. He took it this past year for Bohemian Rhapsody, which I think he fucking shouldn't have. But, you know, that's for no. another time. Yeah, yeah. That's just so interesting, though. Yeah, that it happened push, literally this year. I'll yeah. push Vice till the day I die. Fucking same. <laughs> fucking same, man. But, you yeah. know, that's for another time. <laughs> yeah, we could talk about that all yeah. day, too. We could go through each year and tell you what we... <laughs> What we agree and disagree with. That's the best thing about this, is endless content. Yeah. So The Ghost Rider stars Ewan McGregor as a man who is hired to transcribe the memoirs of a former British Prime Minister, played by Pierce Brosnan. Look at these names, man. Like, these people just keep showing up. Sure, I'll work with Roman. Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Sounds good. As the writer digs deeper into his subject's life, he realizes he's become involved in something quite large and dangerous. It has an IMDb score of 7.2, a Rotten Tomato score of 84%. I agree. I give it an 8. I highly enjoyed The Ghost Rider. I, yeah, I, I, think eight, I think 8 and 84 is very fair. I think it's Ewan McGregor and Pierce Brosnan both give, I think, possibly one of the best performances of both their respective careers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ewan's awesome, man. <laughs> this And this is like a forgotten... Uh, I don't think uh, people know about it. No. no. Uh, and Pierce Brosnan, man. Who would have thought, you know? Yeah. yeah. I'm, not, I'm not even a massive fan of his, but he... Me neither, he, really. He was great. Yeah. He always seems to surprise me outside of James Bond. Yeah, that's where that's where my like dis not dislike, but my just kind of like whatever is Bond. I don't think he's yeah. that great of a Bond. So. He really isn't. But so so yeah. then it kind of affects all the other movies. But it you look at a movie like The Ghost Rider, I thought he was. I mean, he had a brief role in No Escape. Did you see that one? Yeah, yeah. I loved him in that. Mm-hmm, me too. So I think Brosnan. He can got, be great. Yeah. yeah, he can be. But then you know, don't let him sing. I've heard <laughs> he's bad in Mamma Mia. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, the Ghost Rider, great. Another paranoia. That would, that would be in your top five, right? The Ghost, Ghost Rider, Rider, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched that last night. Like I was on the wire for this thing. Like, That's awesome. Up to last night, and frankly, I I did went in there with no expectations. Just kind of like, ah, oh, well, here's the last one. Yeah, one more to go, <laughs> and I'm so glad the last one ended on a high note. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
His next film, 2011's Carnage. Oh, yeah. An adaptation of the stage play God of Carnage by Yasmina Reza. It's downright hilarious and one of his most entertaining films. For sure. It stars Jodie Foster, Kate Winslet, Christoph Waltz, and John C. Riley. <laughs> like, what Oscar? <laughs> like, Oscar people. Like, three of those people are Oscar winners. Like, Jesus Christ, man. They play two sets of parents whose kids had a brutal playground fight. While discussing what the terms of apology should be, the parents become increasingly hostile and childish to the point where all civility goes right out the window. Oh, yeah. Right away. It's, in, it's, it's awesome. Meanwhile, the kids have already made up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's great. This it's... movie is very clever. Very clever. Very short, too. I'm a big fan of just fucking getting to the point, especially when it's, <laughs> especially when it's comedy. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm okay with, like, the long uh, pianist and Tess. And... But it has to have a point. Yes. It needs to, like, really draw me yeah. with the story. But, yeah, when like, that was perfect. It's like an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. Boom, boom, get in, get out, and you laugh. You will laugh, like, at least every five minutes. It's an actor's movie, absolutely. Oh, and it's, yeah. You can, it's tell, so you can tell Winslet's just like, fuck, another day at the park. Like, another day <laughs> just in the office. Like, let's do this. And Waltz is on his Blackberry. Yeah, it, you gotta see this one. It's fun. Jodie Foster's a fucking martyr. Yeah, and yeah, just, yeah. And John C. Riley could give a shit. Yeah, the there's, <laughs> there's a scene when Kate Winslet throws up on, um, <laughs> like, a collection of art oh, that, uh, that Jodie Foster's character has. And it's, <laughs> oh, man, it it's really sucks the whole film she off. she say, toss your cookies. Yeah, yeah. 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 How rude, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, John C. Riley's like, oh, look who, all, look who perked up after they tossed their cookie. <laughs> yeah, it's great, dude. <laughs> Do you hear how crass you are? Yeah, Christoph oh, Waltz fuck. has his pants off in the restroom dry. <laughs> she just, Jodie Foster just walks in, he's like all uncomfortable. Yeah, uh... <laughs> No words so good. at all. So good. They try to <laughs> they try to leave and go to the, like to the elevator, and John C. Riley's like espresso, coffee, yeah, <laughs> cobbler, yeah, yeah, shitty cobbler, yeah. Oh man, god damn, yeah, Carnage is a masterpiece. It really, it's it. great. It's in my top five. I love. I, I had a blast with that one. It's definitely the funniest yes. movie of his. He he really figured out. All right, that's let's just yeah. It took him thirty out. years, but he got comedy right finally. <laughs> uh, <sighs> IMDb score of 7.2, Rotten Tomatoes score of 71, which I think seems low. I do too. It's hard to, it's like such a short and yeah. funny movie. It's hard to like really judge. What I give it an 8, absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I agree. 8 or 9 for me, just because yeah. what it's trying to do, it does really well. This was the last film of Polanski's that we got to watch for the podcast, but I will give you some info on his two most recent ones, as well as one he's got in development at the moment. 2013's Venus in Fur stars Emmanuel Signer and Matthew Amalric. And is based on the stage play by David Ives. In it, an actress attempts to convince a director that she's perfect for a role in his upcoming project. Sounds familiar. <laughs> it has an IMDb score of 7.2, a Rotten Tomato score of 88%, and is highly critically regarded as a return to form. Yeah. So, I intended to see this one, but for sure. time got away from me. Mm -hmm. But I, I, do like, I would like to, re to watch this, and maybe we'll do like a mini update someday. 2017's Based on a True Story stars Emmanuel Signet. As a writer dealing with an obsessive admirer who I assume is played by Eva Green. It has an IMDb score of 5.7 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 52%. Yikes. So not exactly a masterpiece. No. And Polanski's... So he just had returned to form, apparently, <laughs> and <laughs> dropped right back to <laughs> shitty. He tends to do that. He's got like, oh, he's back, and then just right back down to rock yeah. bottom. And then, oh, he's got another one coming back. And, oh. Yeah, he'd, so in between Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown, he had what? In between Rosemary's right? Baby and right? Chinatown was... 1972 what? Macbeth. Oh, Macbeth in 71. And the murder. <laughs> so, that was, yeah. It was a, yeah. He's, um... I don't know. He's, de he's de de divisive. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. Yeah. I don't know what other words to use. <laughs> and he's got one film in, in post-production slated to come out later this year called J'accuse. 
It's about a French captain in 1894 who was falsely convicted of treason and sentenced to life imprisonment at Devil's Island. It stars, it stars Louis Garrel, Jean Dujardin, Matthew Amalric, and you guessed it, Emmanuel Signer. Hey! There she is again. We won Polanski bingo. <laughs> so that's the directing career of Roman Polanski, as well as a glimpse into one of his scandals. Now, according to an October 2017 article from Vox.com, there have been more accusers. Yeah. After the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke, accusers started coming forward saying that Polanski had raped them. One says Polanski raped her twice when she was a child model in 1972. Another says he raped her when she was 16. Whenever he writes about his attraction, Polanski tends to paint the teen girl in question as a mature, fully grown human being who just happens to be fresher and more natural and more beautiful than adult women are. Teen girls have the power in the situation, he writes, and he is just a weak man, helpless against their charms, as he seems to believe is true of all men. Quotes, judges want to fuck young girls, he told Martin Ames in 1979. Juries want to fuck young girls. Everyone wants to fuck young girls. The idea that teenage girls might be children, and that not everyone wants to fuck them, doesn't seem to have occurred to Roman Polanski. If this is true, holy fuck, man. Yep. Like, and I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be true. That's the really fucked up part here. Like, I, yeah, I believe it. I do too. Or a big part of me does anyway. Yeah. And, yeah. I'd like to use the remainder of the time for final thoughts. Is it possible at all to separate the man from the work? What do you think? Uh, we just we just went through everything you can. Yeah. Uh, and with the added on, like you said, the, the more accusations come out. It's tough. <laughs> It's really tough. If it weren't for me loving, like, loving those movies, bef- like, Chinatown, Rosemary's Baby, like, admiring those movies before I knew anything about him, I yeah. don't know. I really don't know. I think that does really play into it. Like For if, sure. If you've for seen, sure. you know, if you love the movie prior to learning all this about him, then I think, you know, you're more inclined to believe in the work than you are in the man. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and stuff like you, you brought up Harvey Weinstein. It's like think about all of those movies. Like yeah. think about you know he worked with Tarantino, The Lord like, of the Rings. Yeah, he so financed that. So like I you know these are movies I love, and I I can't I don't know, man, it's hard. It's really hard, but this is different because this is Roman Polanski is the director. He has so much control of. He's not just pouring money in. He's not just a producer. He's a director, and he's doing a lot and a lot. His touches on a lot of what's going on. And it's just, it's hard. It is really difficult. I mean, we did it. We literally did it. We literally put down our walls of, uh, fuck this guy. And we watched all his movies. And we, uh, everything we could anyway. You know, there's a few missing, but. I, is there an answer? Is there a, a right and wrong? Is it black and white? Is it gray? I don't fucking know. I really don't. And it's like a cultural phenomenon. Like, that's been going on for half a fucking century. I think that it's ever evolving. I think that it's very much. What are you feeling at the time? When you are watching Chinatown, Roman Polanski's shit is in your in the back of your mind. It's over there. Yeah. But when you're watching a documentary about Roman Polanski, of course. It's, it's right up there. Yeah. It's yeah. all about what do you feel at the time? What are you watching? Some some people there's people I know that can't get over it and so they don't watch his movies. Like, yeah. if we're like, hey man, here's Frantic, check it out. Who is it who's it directed by? Polanski. No. I c I'm not like that. Yeah. I, obviously, <laughs> yeah. obviously, uh, you know, we like you, you gave me some of these DVDs and we like, you know, talked about them nonstop and texted back and forth about each one that we watched. Um, and we're, you know, for the most part, you know, into them and uh, pretty, I, I admire some of the work and I, 
I can't deny that. I can't deny my feelings for some of those movies. Um, I would say there's probably six, six or seven of his movies that I re- I like. I really like. Yeah, and that's that's a that's a decent amount. You know, um, I, again, like you said, he he didn't bat a thousand, but um, <laughs> he was in the game, and he's in the game. He's been in the game for a long time. Clearly has a hold on actors, a uh, hold on you know creatives, and people want to work with him still. And whatever whatever he does, whatever power he has, whatever however he like when he's talking to people, I guess he's really charming. I don't know, but he does it, and he keeps doing it, and he's not going to fucking stop. Um, you know, like you said, his movie coming out later this year. You know, who knows what's in the future for him? Uh, he could come out with like a classic film, for all we know, in the next few years. So he could. Who knows, man? Yeah, it's wild stuff. True. Where, where, yeah, where, where are you at? Where do you? I'm, I'm still down the fucking middle. Yeah, yeah. I'm, no, t- I'm just nothing's torn. really changed for it's me. It's just not black and white. It's just yeah. not. It's just not. You can't. It, it's just not. I don't know. It's not. The work. You know, I, I said before that he was heavily involved in every single one of his films. But it's not just his film. Chinatown is Jack Nicholson's film. It's John Huston's film. It's Faye Dunaway's film. It's Robert mm-hmm. Towns' film. Mm-hmm. So everybody gets a say. You know, everybody has a piece of that. Yeah. So I think you can't blame the film for what happened. You have to, you know, take it as its own entity. Because that's what it is. Once it's made, it belongs to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like Chinatown, it'll, you know, it says it's been recognized by, you know, whatever, Criterion yeah. Collection or this or that. Has been, you know, uh, deemed... Culturally, culturally, you know, like a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in the film registry, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, a, a few of his are, and yeah. rightly so. Rightly so, man. Like Chinatown is fucking lights out. It's a ten out of ten for me. Like no doubt, Rosemary's Baby is close to a ten. Uh, Pianist is awesome. Carnage is awesome. Frantic is awesome. Ghost Rider is awesome. Cul de Sac's awesome. Like these are these. There's like, like I said, there's like seven or eight good movies, and I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it with that. Once now that we're done doing this and we've talked about it, and it's consumed my mind, <laughs> yeah. and and my and like I for my girlfriends watch all of it with me, you know, uh, uh, and I've talked to it with like other friends. I talked to my dad yeah. about. I was like, "Do you remember what was going on? Like when you were because my dad was a teenager when the scandal went down." And my dad's like, "I remember going to see his movies in theaters. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah." He's like, "I remember seeing you know Jack Nicholson and like all these huge stars rise up in 2003. Russell Crowe clapping for him, standing like." Ugh, like going crazy for him like why I don't, I don't know I don't know I don't get it other than just pure love for his films but clearly these people who have worked with him love him yeah. that that I don't understand that I, I have no because I'm not in that I'm not in the film industry I don't know I have no comprehension of that part of it but maybe you know I mean he's not I don't know him so I can't yeah say exactly this. yeah we'll never meet him but, but I yeah. know that he's not 100% a rapist that's not all who he is. No, he's no. also a celebrated filmmaker. He's and a what filmmaker. I hear, he's a dear friend to some people. Yes, you know, yeah. People yeah. are layered. Mm-hmm. And and, and he, he's you know he's got a wife. Like yeah, he's been, he, he who, remarried. Who's been with him for quite some time now. Um, I'm, I'm not justifying it this way, but he no, has been no. through some horrific tragedy. I mean, Jesus Christ, man! The but, stuff with being a kid during World War II, like. Um, us Americans, we can't fathom. We Surviving cannot... alone in the Krakow ghetto yeah, we... while Poland's being bombed by the Nazis. And then, you Ugh. know, 30 years later, his wife being brutally murdered by the Manson family. Yeah, we Just cannot fathom fuck, this. Man. Yeah, we don't We don't know what it's like to go through tragic events like that. And but I that does not justify what he did. No. At all. Yeah, that's what we're saying. Is yeah. like, there is no just... There is no, like, taking sides here. Uh, and that's why we're both saying we're down the middle. Is like, yeah. fuck. I mean, fuck. I like his movies, but... He's kind of, you know, he made a huge mistake. Yeah. 
uh, might might have made you know a few more uh, according to these accusers. So yeah, uh, it's it's fucking tough, man. But the Academy really needs to get more consistent with how they, because uh, th- that's the biggest film award. You know, yeah. they got to get consistent. They really do uh, for me. And that that Roman Polanski is someone you probably could have made an example out of and been like, look, this will will not fly. Like, do not give the shit up, like for tests. Like in '79 when all that was going down, if you put your foot down, you say, look. If we find shit out about you, and you're making movies, we're not going to award you. You can make your movies, they can make money, they can go out and make box office, you know, big dollars, but we're not going to give you a fucking trophy. Like, that's that's a relatively modern thought, though. Like, that, you know, people are only getting in trouble for this now. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's, this has never been a secret in Hollywood. People have known about, like, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, and all this shit for decades. Mm -hmm. And only now is it not okay to, to rape and, you know, assault people. In the you know, by using your fame, the internet man, it's changed everything. Yeah, changed everything. So if you if you make those actions now, it will get out so fast. Someone will tweet it, or someone will be Snapchatting. You don't even know who's watching, who's filming, who's everything's fucking documented. So uh, it's just a different time now, and different time than it was in the seventies. And again, we're neither of us are justifying like either side really. It's just. <laughs> We're just talking about it because yeah. it's fucking fascinating. I'm so glad to finally get all this shit out. Yeah, like this has been—it's been on my chest heavy. Four yeah. weeks in the making, this one. Yeah, and, and we're gonna—we're gonna keep doing like this. We're not gonna let up. Every every weird shit Wednesday, we are gonna come at you with yes a fucking hard film gasm. Like that's that's happening and yeah, highly know, researched, well thought out. Hour and a half. Get buckle in. You know, yeah. this, it's happening. Um, yeah, so you guys get ready for more shit like this. <laughs> Fuck yes. And thank you so much for listening to us rant about one of cinema's most fascinating and controversial figures. If you want to see more from Filmgasm, feel free to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or YouTube for weekly videos every Wednesday. And you can check the website, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram for updates on reviews, podcasts, articles. If you just want to shoot us like a suggestion, yeah, feel yeah. free. We're always listening. Or just say, hey, keep it up. I, we'll take any. We don't give yeah. a shit. Yeah. And I want to thank Austin for helping me attempt to unravel this guy. Yeah, it's not, it wasn't easy. I'll <laughs> tell you what, man. I, and I need a fucking break from yeah, Polanski. Yeah, I need like a like, beer and a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned next Wednesday for another Filmgasm where I will be flying solo once again for episode 11, where I will be going over the recently released Ted Bundy biopic, Extremely Wicked, Woo-woo! Shockingly Evil, and Vile, starring Zac Efron as America's Most first, Notorious First Netflix killer. film? First Netflix film, yeah. First Netflix film, here we go. Yeah. It's not a horror film per se, but it's a horrific situation. And you, it, it opens doors yeah. for you to talk about Ted Bundy. I get to talk about Ted Bundy, and I'm going to talk about some other uh, films that are based on real-life serial killers, like The Iceman, Hell yeah. My Friend Dahmer, From oh, Hell, yeah. Monster, and just Monsters. kind of... Yeah, oh, I'm going to open the floodgates <laughs> for real horror. And it's it. going to be very interesting. I'm very much looking forward to that, and you'll be able to check that out next Wednesday. So thanks again. Had a fucking blast doing this one. Yeah, say did I. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Roman, Roman, hey, uh, we love some of your movies, but I don't know what to tell you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm you ever, sure you get that a lot. If you ever hear this, yeah, seriously, I don't know. I don't know if your life's shitty when you walk around Paris. I don't know. I don't Sign know. my Rosemary's Baby, but stay away yeah, from my Yeah, yeah, oh my God, can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, be like, here's all my, yeah, all my DVDs. Sign them all, man. Ugh. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. Roman Polanski. Classic. Yeah.